2: Hi, Rebecca. Hi, John. And hello, listeners. This is the News Items podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, bringing you news items that we think are interesting, important, or both.
1: It's Monday, April 26th. As we usually do, we'll start with two important science and tech headlines and then get into the news items. John, what's on the agenda today?
2: Two good political stories. Biden's approval rating is so-so. And Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummins are in a cage deathmatch.
1: A cage death match. Can't wait. Can't wait to hear about it.
2: And you, Rebecca?
1: Okay, so I'm going to get into ESG funds. That's environmental, social, and governance-oriented funds. They're attracting massive amounts of investment, but paradoxically, that may lead to a SIN premium. On non-ESG stocks. We'll explain what that is. Then, after the break, we'll talk about a plan to create a huge public bank in the state of California that would give residents access to free banking services.
2: All right, let's go to our science and tech headlines.
1: First, Apple plans on rolling out an iPhone software update today, Monday... It includes a new privacy feature called App Tracking Transparency. Basically, iPhone users get to decide whether apps are allowed to track their activity—scrolling, clicking, liking, etc.—across other apps. That type of information is, of course, central to Facebook's value proposition to advertisers. That's really the entire business model, in fact. A New York Times feature reports on how this privacy feature is just the latest battlefront between Facebook and Apple execs Mark Zuckerberg and Tim Cook. John, what's your take on the increasing hostility between the CEOs of Facebook and Apple?
2: I think this has been going on for some time, right? Mm -hmm. They're mutually dependent, right? People use their iPhones to access WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook itself. So the more they're using the iPhone, the better it is for Apple, On the other hand, Apple doesn't really benefit from Facebook using its platform to increase its revenue exponentially Mm -hmm. um, and has positioned itself as the defender of yours and my privacy.
1: Does this kind of isolation of Mark Zuckerberg, does this bring any real heat to Facebook that might cause them to rethink their approach on policy? Because they've been pretty brash and unapologetic.
2: I mean, they, they make the point, which is, hey, it's free, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's something that you love. I mean, people yeah. love Instagram.
1: But they don't know so, how the sausage is made. I mean. Well,
2: but, I mean, the, the, the trade is, hey, it's free, okay? Uh-huh. We invade your privacy. You know that. But, but it's free. So, you know, the mm-hmm. darker side of what this all means is essentially a corporate surveillance state, Mm-hmm. So Apple is well positioned to take a stand against that. Um, that's what they're doing. It's good PR. It's probably, it's probably just a good idea on its on its face.
1: All right. Well, my money's on Tim Cook in this fight. It's a feud to watch. It's fun. Yeah, it is fun, isn't For it? For us, right? <laughs> All right, so moving on. Scientists have known that some neurons process both memories and perception at the same time. The question is, how does the brain prevent interference as it analyzes the past and present? Research out of Princeton University shows how a group of neurons act in complementary ways— one remained stable during both sensory and memory representations. The other neurons swapped between these two roles. This teamwork is enough to separate memory from present experience, all while using fewer neurons and energy. The research was published this month in the journal Nature Neuroscience.
2: It's just astonishing, right? I mean, it is. there's nothing else to say.
1: Very exciting inroads. All right, let's get to the news items. Right. John, at the end of this week, President Joe Biden will reach his 100th day in office, and a new Washington Post-ABC News poll has Biden at a 52% approval rating. Since 1945, only two other presidents have had lower approval ratings at their 100-day mark, Presidents Ford and Trump. However, we are living in a time of unprecedented polarization. Does Biden's 52% approval rating mean his glass is half full or half empty?
2: Both. Right? Half full because he enjoys the full support of his party. Democrats are overwhelmingly positive about the Biden presidency so far. He enjoys pretty good numbers on his handling of the coronavirus, mm-hmm. positive on the economy. But it's also half empty because Biden came into office hoping that he could work with Republicans accomplish a few things uh, in a bipartisan manner, try to take some of the poison out of partisan politics in Washington and around the country. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just not going to happen. The the divide is too great.
1: You know, 53 percent of poll respondents disapprove of Biden's handling of the immigration issue, and only 64 percent of Democrats approve. I thought this was a stark departure from Biden's otherwise very high approval approval. Marks from his own party members. Do you think that is something the president should be alarmed about?
2: He should be. You know, the issue that really drove the Trump campaign in 2015 16 was immigration. Mm -hmm. Borders, language, culture is a huge issue. Despite mainstream press trying to tell us that it isn't a big issue, it's a huge issue. And the situation on the border is out of hand. And people see that they see it on TV and they read about it. And the Biden administration has really, really struggled to come up with a strategy or a policy that can at least mitigate what's going on. And there is the deep suspicion, of course, that the reason that the Democrats want a wide open immigration policy is because they think that the people emigrating to the United States will vote Democratic two to one. So, you know, it's a real point of vulnerability. The Republicans probably have three arguments at this point for the midterm elections. The big one is immigration. mm mm-hmm. Second one would be sort of big government, liberal overreach, et cetera. And the third is support for the police. That's going to be a huge issue in 2022.
1: Let's put a lid on this one and move on to the next news item. Right. Dominic Cummings, the former chief advisor to U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson, is expected to blame Johnson personally for tens of thousands of second wave COVID deaths at an appearance before members of parliament next month. Specifically, he intends to accuse Johnson of being too slow to close the border and of indifference toward the potential death toll. The fight between the two former allies has been brewing for months. Cummings was fired last year, and three conservative-friendly newspapers recently named him as the source behind damaging leaks last October. Cummings responded with an incredibly provocative blog post that denied the allegations and accused Johnson of incompetence. What do you think is Dominic Cummings' real motivation in pursuing this kind of scorched-earth PR policy? What does he have to gain by throwing Boris Johnson under the red double-decker bus, so to speak?
2: Well, he's being accused of leaking confidential information.
1: Dominic Cummings is.
2: Dominic Cummings is, um, which is, you know— potentially prosecutable, if that's a word.
1: Which of the allegations, the leaked allegations, is prosecutable?
2: There was a leak to the BBC, and I think that's the one where the national security, quote-unquote, was compromised. And the Johnson people are putting out that the reason he's doing this is that he's scared he'll go to prison. Oh, okay. Which, as an explanation or as an argument, seems to me extremely weak. The person who's at risk here is not Cummings. The person who's at risk is Johnson. Cummings is not making charges without evidence, you know. Yeah. Um, his text messages, WhatsApp, communications, emails, you know, according to him, he has more than enough evidence to make Mr. Johnson's life incredibly difficult.
1: Is it possible that leaking the substance of these allegations against Boris Johnson will in effect backfire against Dominic Cummings and that... They will be received as, you know, no great shakes. That Maybe he said something sleazy or maybe he did something shady, but it's not shady enough.
2: You know, the rule of Trump may apply, right? Which is yeah. the next scandal, which you just absolutely can't believe that anybody could get away with, is immediately followed up by another scandal that's even more extraordinary.
1: Another, yeah.
2: And the net result is that you just sort of turn it off and life goes on. I mean, if I were the Johnson people, I would get out all the bad stuff now yeah. and expect that in two weeks from now, the conversation will have shifted to something else. And, uh-huh. you know, the Labor Party will be gasbagging on and on about this being a violation of that and on and on. But it may be that the presumption of the electorate is such that the whole thing is so corrupt, it doesn't matter which corrupt person runs it.
1: Do you think Boris Johnson can survive this?
2: I do. I do. Yeah. You know, look, it's not going to be easy, right? It's mm-hmm. going to be a lot of embarrassing stuff that comes out, but I don't know what the alternative is, right? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of his insurance policy is that at the moment, there's no real alternative to Johnson. So yes, it's all true, but we'll slog along and see what happens later.
1: Well, that'll be another another uh, another nasty matchup to watch.
2: All right, moving along. ESG funds, or environmental, social and governance-oriented funds that invest in companies that at least appear to act ethically have raked in $340 billion in the last two years, almost twice as much as other stock funds. Over the next 10 years, they will probably continue to attract vast sums of money. Now, according to our friend Robin Wigglesworth in the Financial Times, that could provide a sin premium, quote-unquote sin premium. For those willing to invest in relatively shunned, and therefore undervalued, stocks in morally compromised industries like tobacco or gambling. Rebecca, it seems like we could be running into the law of unintended consequences here. Wigglesworth points out in his column, the data on ESG returns versus non-ESG funds is mixed. What do you make of this?
1: Obviously, as you mentioned, it's attracted a ton of money. One big reason for this is that you have a whole wave of institutional investors, like, for example, Canadian pension funds or sovereign wealth funds or you know, major institutions like BlackRock, Fidelity, et cetera, et cetera, who have mandates that they have to invest according to some kind of ESG guidelines. There's also the issue of what, you know, what is an ESG stock? I think one maybe more mundane explanation for the popularity of these funds is that it's sort of a built-in case for active management which has been fighting the shift to passive investment strategies through investing in, in uh, ETFs or in index funds in recent years, because there's no clear-cut benchmark about what is an ESG stock, what is a sustainable investment strategy, makes it very easy to say, well, we take an active approach to selecting stocks that fit these criteria, and this is the kind of impact benchmark that we're measuring up against. It's not so easy to do ESG investing using a passive strategy.
2: So there's no uh, benchmark ESG fund, it's just...
1: There are like clean energy ETFs, but the universe of ESG is, is vast. Let's say you have a company that has a great environmental record, but they have lousy corporate board diversity. You know, they don't have, I mean, it's like, what do you, how do you make that judgment? On, you know, there's not necessarily a uniform way of doing so uh, in investment, and so it makes it a little murky. But anyway, these are sort of like 30,000-foot you know, observations about the ESG investment strategy. So Robin Wigglesworth makes the argument that, you know, pouring a ton of money at ESG, does this create a situation where the traditional SIN stocks are undervalued and then they become attractive from a value standpoint? I don't know.
2: So our advice is to buy Altria? I don't
1: know if our advice is to buy Altria, but, you know, you could split the difference. If you want to invest in the kind of sin trade but also keep it green, you could invest in, like, a cannabis REIT.
2: Cannabis.
1: That's the best of both worlds, right? Right. You get a little little ESG and a little sin (laughs) in the mix, right? Right. So Wigglesworth is suggesting that private equity may be the sector or the investor segment to jump into these morally dubious Areas. Like, I can't imagine. They've never done anything like that before.
2: No. No. That would be a first.
1: <laughs> I mean, usually private equity is looking for kind of short-term pain, long-term gain.
2: I mean, the one thing we do know is that gambling will attract investment. I yeah. mean, big time. Everybody's investing in it, right? Yeah. Everybody from Fox to God yeah. knows who else. So that will definitely not lack for investor enthusiasm. Yeah. And in order to gamble, you need to be stoned. So <laughs> cannabis yeah. will do well. Yeah. And then you probably need to take the edge off. So you have a couple of drinks. And so that'll do well. The only one that it would seem to me where the path is downward is tobacco. So they're going to have to buy up all the cannabis companies and yeah. then they'll be back in business attracting investment.
1: So the, the bottom line is that we may be on the cusp of a massive secular bull market in sin. I like it. All right. I like it. We're long sin.
2: We're, we're in with sin. In with yes.
1: sin, whatever it may be.
2: Anyway, we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we will be right back.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves.
1: Welcome back to News Items. John, for our last item, let's discuss a proposal from 18 state lawmakers in California to create BankCal, a public bank that would offer free financial services like no-fee debit cards, direct deposits, and more to all California residents.
2: The legislation is scheduled for a hearing later this week, so it's not a done deal, obviously, but it is gaining traction. Not surprisingly, the California Bankers Association opposes the bill, saying that many of their members already offer affordable banking options. So, Rebecca, should the state government get into retail banking?
1: Why the hell not? I mean, seriously, (laughs) I think it's appropriate that it happens in California, the state that brought us Wells Fargo and the Wells Fargo scandal. I mean, that's a case in point of what can go, you know, of, you know, the real lapses in, in leaving something like this up to the private sector entirely. Plus, I mean, there's a, you know, there's, well, let me get your take, John. What do you think?
2: The holy grail has always been banking the unbanked, right? And billions Mm -hmm. of people around the world are unbanked. I think this is the first I've heard of a state government stepping in here and filling that gap.
1: There is a precedent for this in North Dakota. The Bank of North Dakota was founded in 1919. It was founded to serve the state's farmers. There are $8 billion in assets under management at the Bank of North Dakota, and it's solvent. It's a profitable enterprise. So... There's an example of state banking that has worked.
2: Can we bank there?
1: If you're not from North Dakota? Yeah. I don't know. You want to try to open an account? Let me know what happens.
2: I'm going to go to the website after we're done.
1: See if you can trade Bitcoin or something there. Open a Bitcoin account.
2: I just, I want the fee-free service. Yeah. It's probably only available to North Dakotans.
1: You know, the sector that's really angling to harness the limited funds of the unbanked is cryptocurrency. So I think this is a smart and strategic move at heading off massive potential exploitation of the underbanked or the unbanked by lightly regulated cryptocurrency startups. And I think it's fitting for there to be some kind of legal and regulatory and government framework around Silicon Valley efforts to, you know, bring fintech to the masses. These guys are not going to regulate themselves. Really? <laughs> really. They're not going to regulate themselves. <laughs> They're You're <not>. kidding, right? <laughs> right? You know, I think CalBank, I, I think it's an interesting proposition. I think it's exciting.
2: Yeah, I think it'll be hugely popular. And, yeah. And not just with the unbanked. I mean, I would take this in a heartbeat. Sure. So you could end up with what we call CalBank. Yeah. As the major banking institution in the state of California.
1: There was a, a 2019 survey by the FDIC, that's the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which found a, there are a disproportionate number of households of color in California that are not served by traditional banking, conventional banking, the banks like Wells Fargo, JP Morgan Chase, Citigroup, etc., as far as the reasons why, according to that FDIC survey, 49 percent cited the high minimum balance requirements and just over a third cited prohibitively high fees as the reason why they don't bank with you know traditional banking services. And I think it's very smart for the state of California to recognize that there is a market failure here, that this is an opportunity for government to show itself out to good effect rather than leaving this to the Walmarts, the Facebooks and the Bitcoins of the world to do it.
2: I would imagine – that the lobbyists for the banking industry in Sacramento must be on high alert. Let's put it that way.
1: Yeah. As we mentioned, the California Bankers Association opposes the measure. That's not surprising, saying they already offer low-cost options for retail customers. But, you know, that begs the question, then why are so many people still unbanked? The numbers say one thing. The lobby association says something else. And I think it's smart for California to take the lead.
2: The established banks always say at public hearings in front of congressional committees, yeah. you know, this is a major concern and we're addressing it and this, that, and the other thing. And the numbers never change. So the private sector has not met this need. Yeah, And so the state of California is stepping in. Is it overreach?
1: Banking at the post office used to be a thing. Postal banking was actually a valuable public service during the Great Depression when people obviously were worried about bank collapses. I hadn't thought of that. You know, many banks were insolvent during the Great Depression. And so people opted for postal banking because it was a federal public agency and thought that it was a safer option than many banks.
2: There was a movie about that, right?
1: About post office banking?
2: Jimmy Stewart.
1: (laughs) Oh it's a wonderful life. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's a wonderful life. All right, well we need like we need the reboot. Post Office Banking, Senator Gillibrand, Democrat of New York has uh, has proposed reestablishing retail banking at all post offices. She's done that twice. She's proposed it twice obviously that's a, i think those proposals were DOA
2: i mean the banking lobby is such in washington that it's sort of a non question because it's never going to happen right the only thing that will make it happen is success at the state level 100 years of north dakota is obviously successful yeah but if california is successful then you know then there'll be demand from consumers from you and me yeah. and unbanked people and everybody else you know, once that becomes a public opinion force, so to speak, then politicians adjust to public opinion. But for the moment, you know, you couldn't possibly get something like this through Congress. I mean, the, the banking lobby is way too powerful for that.
1: You know, it's interesting because on one hand, you could say to the banking lobby, you know, look, retail customers who keep traditionally low balances in their accounts, who don't buy investment products, who are just using the bank as a means of depositing a paycheck, doing basic household type operations. Those aren't high margin customers. But then you ask, but are they? Right? I mean, the banks wouldn't be so eager to hold on to them if they weren't high margin customers, right? Yeah, I think, say, I, mean, I
2: think it's, the uh, you know, there's all sorts fees. of fees, overdrafts. Yeah. And if you had credit cards, you know, you might fall back on your payments. And then the next thing you know, the interest rate is 19 or 21 or 25%, depending on your credit rating. Mm-hmm. That's very profitable business. So auto loans, you know, mortgages, all that stuff, Those are very profitable pieces of business. Absolutely. It's going to be a good story, though. It's a good idea. One we can follow.
1: So, yeah, I wouldn't have known about this Bank Cal story without news items. I'm glad I'm a subscriber. (laughs) Other people should subscribe, too. By searching Substack John Ellis news items on Google, they'll take you right there.
2: And speaking of websites, they can go to investableuniverse.com, the global market of things.
1: Yes, that's it from us today. News items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Biename, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Billy Gardella, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with more of the news. See you then.
2: Everybody hates Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> You're not going to go to a dinner party and have somebody take terrible exception to what you said about Mark Zuckerberg. I think it's one of the few subjects that you can bring up at any dinner party anywhere and people Uh say, I agree with you.
1: That's interesting. I'm going to test that out. Check it out. I'll let you know what I find out.